Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the GQ podcast, Career Decisions. My name is Stuart McGurk, and I'm GQ's Associate Editor. We're at Farmhouse Down, a cosy cottage in the heart of Soho Farmhouse in Oxfordshire, where we'll be grabbing the stars of our GQ Heroes event, taking them through the biggest moments of their careers, the decisions they've made, and the lessons they've learned. On this episode, the man who went from a monastery to creating the biggest meditation app in the world, Andy Puddicombe. Andy Puddicombe, founder of Headspace, thank you so much for joining us for our GQ Heroes podcast. It's a pleasure. Um, let me just start by asking, how how does the founder of Headspace start his day? I mean, it's a little bit predictable, isn't it? But to, to, to say meditation, I, I normally start my day, so I, I like to start my day with a bit of exercise first. So actually, rather than getting out of bed and meditating, I normally try and I go for a run or I go for a cycle. I like to do some kind of physical exercise. Then I do my meditation and then I kind of get on with the rest of the day. Does it begin at some ungodly hour of it the morning? It does begin quite early. Um, not quite as early as it did back in the monastery, but it's I, I get up, I normally get up around sort of quarter to five, something like that, half past four, quarter to five. Well, I was, I was going to get on to that because in the monastery you were getting up at three. Is that right? Yeah. So two? We used, yeah, we used to get up at 2.30 for a three o'clock start. So everything else feels like a lion. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So no, it definitely sets you up. You do that for long enough and it sets you up for the rest of your life of early mornings. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that. So this is our, our podcast is um, career decisions. So we're looking at basically the key moments that kind of put you on the path to where you are. Not just the successes, but maybe the, the things that didn't go successful that you that you learned from. Yeah. Um, so I know we, we, you touched on this when you when you spoke on stage, but can you pinpoint a moment that you knew something needed to change in your life and as, mm. as, as a young man? I can. I think um, I can pinpoint it to an afternoon, you know, like to a very specific day, specific hour. Um, and I was at university and um yeah i was studying sports science and it was almost as though something had been building inside and i wasn't necessarily conscious of it i certainly hadn't been thinking you know should i be going become a, a monk or anything like that um but there was just a, a growing sense inside of me that something different needed to happen something needed to change and i remember being quite overwhelmed one afternoon to the point where... Do you remember what you, what you were doing at the time? Yeah, I was sat in, I was in a student student house. There were, there were seven of us living in the house. 
I was on my own in the house and I was upstairs in my room and I was just sitting kind of on my chair and just just feeling completely you know overwhelmed but not necessarily in a sort of a desperate sense not in a kind of panic attack not in a panic attack sort of way just sort of just filled with an intensity and um i i honestly to this day i don't know how to describe that experience but i do know that you know i remember crying a little bit and i remember by the end of that kind of hour or so i knew a hundred percent what i needed to do and what i was gonna do and it sounds ridiculous because it was so, so different from what I, I was studying at a sports college, you know. And um, to suddenly leave that and go and be a monk was... It's not normally an A to B, is it? It's not. It's quite extreme, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, I can't, as I say, it's very difficult to put into words. I think people who go and do this type of thing often talk about it as a calling. I'm not suggesting there was some kind of like higher power or anything like that, but there was a sense of something bigger than me kind of moving me and me just being kind of part of it. And and it was with such a level of confidence that I was able to go into college and say, hey, to my friends who, you know, I've been out drinking with the night before. I mean, they were never going to buy that. And to my teachers who I really kind of respected and and say, you know what, I've, I feel like this is the right the right decision for me. Who was the first person you told? So I think it was my it was my head of my head of year. Um, what was the reaction? He thought I was mad. He thought I was throwing my life away. That I was wasting uh, a really valuable opportunity. So I was getting on well at college, and I was doing some work in the lab as well, and and really enjoying it. And I think he just and I get it, you know. Like retrospectively, if I'm sitting in his seat, you know, I'm probably thinking like. Oof, Maybe this is a bit rash, you know. He's just had this idea this afternoon, and and now he's going to quit quit college. So I, I get where he's coming from, but he was pretty old school too, and um, maybe maybe wasn't that open to mm. to other other possibilities in life. And what about your parents? My parents. So my mum was really, she yeah, it was a mixture. She was on the one hand, she was thrilled, like you know. Thrilled that you'd found what you wanted to do. I think, yeah, I think she was. She was really. She was proud that I'd kind of made the decision to go and do something like that, which wasn't necessarily conventional. I think she'd lived a very conventional life, but within her was in a very unconventional person, and so hence we'd had meditation in the house, and you know we'd grown up going to have acupuncture rather than seeing a doctor and all that kind of stuff. So I think she was really proud, but also a little bit scared that what that the implications of that were one that it would mean me living abroad two that it might mean she might never have a, a grandkid and you know all that sort of stuff um can i my, ask without those experiences yeah. of your with with your mother and you know you you've spoken about this kind of ruinous way of that there's just a pill to solve solve yeah. everything with, without those experiences do you think you that you'd have been on the path that you did or that you'd have even thought about becoming a monk yeah i I think without that exposure growing up, I'm not sure. I think it was all part of the same kind of thing. I, I see this thing as a journey, and I think we don't always know what's coming next or why something came before, but my feeling is that that exposure all kind of led towards that, that, later, that later decision. So, And it, it's funny, I was talking to a friend the other day. When I look at what my mum was doing, you know, so she was, she was teaching stress management in, in companies, 
um, back in the what the 1980s, she was making relaxation tapes, um, and she was teaching sort of you know relaxation techniques. So it's not a huge leap um, that I might sort of then go and go and do that stuff down down the line. But my dad was he's different. He's a lot more old school, very supportive, but probably thought I'd gone a little bit mad. <laughs> yeah. Just thought, maybe thought it was a phase you were going through. He's going through the monk exactly. phase. Exactly. I, I genuinely think it was. It was funny. It was It was interesting to watch their journey as well like, over the years. I think to begin with, oh, he's gone crazy. It's okay. He'll get over it. And then like, a year or so would go by and it's like, well, he's still into this. Like, when is this going to end? And then maybe sort of three or four years in, it was kind of like, oh, okay. So may- maybe he's serious about this. So what are the practicalities of that decision? You buy a plane ticket to Yeah. Well this was um this was pre pre internet, you know. So um this was uh this was go and buy a Lonely Planet book yeah. um of 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 India and, and Southeast Asia and um look up to see where the Dalai Lama lives. Like genuinely. I, I bought a Lonely Planet <laughs> book, I looked to see where the Dalai Lama lived and I bought a ticket to Northern India. It's and... like the equivalent of the Yellow Pages book for the Dalai Lama. <laughs> you buy as many Lonely Planets as you can and it's like he's here somewhere. <laughs> exactly, I know, he's in there somewhere. You know, and so I did. I went and I went and worked for three months in a restaurant waiting tables to save enough money to buy a plane ticket to go to India. Um, and, that was, and that was it. And you do... You actually, people joke, kind of, oh, what do you do? You just go and sort of knock on the door of the monastery and say, can I be a monk, please? That is pretty much how it happens. That's what you do. So, so you go there and you ask and they don't let you become a monk straight away. You have to do a bit of kind of training and stuff and sure. they want to make sure that, you know, you're they serious make sure, about I was going to say they want to make sure you're serious because there yeah. must have some people that have the idea but don't necessarily have what it takes to kind of follow through with that idea, right? Yeah, so normally there's you train as a lay person, then you train as a novice monk, and then eventually you can train as a as a fully ordained monk. Um so let's get back to those early start times. Yeah. Why why? <laughs> as someone who doesn't like to yeah. rise early at all, what what is the reasoning to rise at half two in the morning? That is a great question. I think if you if you do it and you do it on a regular basis, even if you're not necessarily into it, I think there is there's an incredible energy about early in the morning. There's, it's just different. I think every time of day has its own kind of energy. Um, but the focus in the monastery is on on training and awareness. And it's much harder to be aware when we're asleep, right? Mm-hmm. So unless you're proficient in lucid dreaming, um, most of the time we're not aware when, when we're asleep. So... In the monastery, we try and shorten the the length of of sleep so it makes it easier to be aware for more of the day, right? And also easier to be aware at night time because the, the the amount of sleep is is slightly less. So um, it's really trying to just maximise the the opportunity. So being in a monastery is seen as a very you know precious opportunity, and it's like okay, how are you going to make the most of the day? And actually, although when we're living in a very busy world like we most of us do now um we can say okay seven eight hours nine hours sleep whatever people kind of need everyone's mm. different in the monastery there's is a very different lifestyle there's not so many um there's not so much sensory input the right. mind is very kind of calm most of the time so you just don't need as much sleep either so in the monastery kind of four four and a half hours is 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 enough okay um and so when did you start to really understand the, the the teaching and when did you start to feel a a, a change because of that 
I think I'm still really? understanding it kind of okay. now. I, I think it it continues to change and evolve. I don't think that ever ever stops. Um, either, like I, either the, I'm, well, no, either that or I'm I'm incredibly slow learner, which is, is possible. That is possible. Yeah, all the monks are like I should have only taken two years. <laughs> exactly. Um, I've been held back a few few years. Yeah, I think there was um, there were a few points that I, I do remember. I do remember, and I'm not making this out to be sort of some like grand experience or anything, but I do remember one particular experience in the monastery where. Something really sort of shifted and, and changed and there was just a – I think I'd gone into the monastery thinking that it was – most people go into the monastery kind of wanting something for themselves, you know. It's like whether it's to feel less stress, whether it's wanting peace of mind. We kind of want it for ourselves, you know. And I think over time that shifts and changes and there's a recognition that – we're not really kind of separate from each other in a, in the big sense of the word. And, and the more you meditate, the more there's that feeling of connection. And, yeah, there was a time where that became a lot more sort of profound or a lot more sort of stable in my in my thinking. And And when that happens, there's a shift and there's no longer kind of striving to try and get peace of mind for oneself there's just a a greater sense of ease and there's a greater sense of relaxation in in the body and in the mind and and just a greater feeling of connection with everything and every one around you you know and and that was really i think uh yeah sort of a pivotal kind of moment i guess I, I suppose it's it's the irony of something like that if there's some if you try to force it by its very nature yeah. it's not going to come and that i think is it's one of the, the great kind of challenges in a way. It's kind of what we're looking for is already here, but at the same time we kind of we have to search for it because otherwise we can't ever find it. And so it's there's it's full of paradox. The whole thing is full of paradox. And and I think most people um will either put too much effort in trying to find it or not enough effort. And so I would say in many ways the journey of meditation is refining effort. And it's not again, it's not like a switch. Once you find it, you're you're done. It's there and every time you sit down, every single day is different. I feel like it's a little bit like sort of learning to drive a car and how much how much you have to press down on the on the accelerator. And some days, you know, you need a little bit more, some days a little bit less, but it's just finding that kind of sweet spot. Um yeah. Um and and you know, as another one of the decisions was that you did leave, otherwise we wouldn't be talking to you now. Yeah. So, I, well, unless you were traveling, unless tra- I traveling out to, uh, to a Tibetan, Tibetan <laughs> yeah, monastery. <quite>. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got the haircut. I mean, we're <laughs> yeah, exactly. halfway there. Yeah, halfway there. <laughs> so, talk me through that. How did how did that come about? What was the decision yeah. in terms of of leaving? So I was um so I'd done a certain amount of training and, and retreat and they they'd asked me to go and um teach at a meditation center in Moscow in Russia. So I spent quite a few years living in, in Russia. And I was meeting an increasing number of people who they didn't want to be Buddhist, they definitely didn't want to become a monk or a nun, but they were stressed out in their lives and they wanted to be less stressed. They wanted to sleep better, they wanted to have happier relationships, and they saw meditation as a as a way to do that. But it was difficult to to be able to relate to those people. They were lay people leading ordinary lives, families, work. It was quite difficult as a as a monk living a very different kind of lifestyle to to be able to kind of relate in that way. 
Um, so increasingly, I, I just started to think, you know, there is an opportunity to to present this in a in a very different way, you know, and to sort of to demystify. I'd already found a way to talk about it in which people got it kind of quite quickly. Mm. But I was still dressed in a maroon skirt, essentially, you know. So I think taking that away allowed, yeah, allowed for the opportunity to to make it a lot more accessible. And so I spoke to my teacher, you know, and he's a very a very pragmatic kind of man. And and I said, you know, this is this is how I feel. This is this is what I'd like to do. I won't say he was he wasn't delighted. Right. Um I remember calling him from Moscow, you know, and having a conversation over the phone. <laughs> and um saying, Look, you know, I think I think I'm, you know, gonna gonna do this. And then as we talked some more, you know, I think he became increasingly sort of supportive of the idea and now as as time's gone on, he even came he flew out, he's uh, he's in his mid to late 70s now he flew out to to LA and spent a day with the the headspace team out in out in the hills of Malibu um last last year and it's amazing how supportive they've been and i think the whole kind of journey for anyone becoming a buddhist monk or a nun is to reduce suffering in the world and mm. and i think he's seen you know that this is a tool that that can help with that so they're was in in the wider I guess community of of Buddhist monks was there I mean we'll get onto the creation of the app in, yeah. in a second was there skepticism about doing sure. it via an app at first from myself oh right as well, yeah you okay. know kind of so it definitely wasn't just other people you know when uh, Rich co-founder suggested it I thought it was a terrible idea <laughs> did you tell him that <laughs> I didn't say it was a terrible idea I, I remember he, he, he this said this is the worst he, idea he, you've yeah. ever had <laughs> <laughs> he does remind me of that frequently no I'm, I remember sitting across the table from him I, I did say I, I just can't I can't see this kind of working I, you know I'd come from a tradition where it was always teacher to student in person in the room like the idea of putting out a, a meditation just in, in that way I just couldn't imagine it working but equally I, I knew nothing about technology I didn't know anything about apps or so uh, it probably took a few years not only for other people's skepticism to to sort of reduce but also for me to kind of come round to that that way of thinking. When you were yeah. developing it, what were some of the, the missteps along the way? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? What can feel like a misstep at the time, I think retrospectively, is incredibly useful. So even mm. that decision, and I'm not suggesting that 
um, Rich was wrong and I was right, because that's not the case at all. But in saying no to an app at first, we did, what, two and a half years of events? And doing those events, putting on those events in London, allowed us to meet people face-to-face, to find out what they liked, what they didn't like. It allowed us to create content. It allowed for the creation of the brand, of the the look and the feel and the way we presented it. So in many ways, that was all sort of content that eventually became the app. And I don't know it's how... It's almost like workshopping it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I don't know how we would have created the app without those two and a half years beforehand. So, you know, even to the point where when we... Um, I mean, the app almost happened by... I don't want to make it sound like it was a grand vision or plan. It, it almost happened by accident. People would come to the event and say, okay, I'm really inspired, but what do I do when I go home? So we're like, okay, we should probably give them something to go home with. So we record, you know, a few little meditations and we'd stick them on a little stick, you know, and people would take them, take them, take them away. And then people would write in and say, well, I can't come to the event. Can I just buy the, the meditation? So we started doing that. And eventually, you know, that just naturally led to, led to an app. So yes, there were, I don't really see, I just don't really see life in terms of kind of mistakes. I feel like it, we're just continually sort of learning and sometimes the lessons are really easy and straightforward and sometimes they're really difficult, really challenging. We wish they were different, but actually retrospectively, they they look as though they were the right thing at the right time. Let, let's frame it like that then. What are some of the, in, in the making of the app, some of the yeah. lessons you learned? Um, so one, naivety is, is a brilliant thing because it's full of optimism and... Um, you can do amazing things with that. But there are also some limitations. I think Rich and I imagined reaching millions of people, but we thought we could probably do it just the two of us, um, knowing absolutely nothing about technology. Um, so we found out... Discover- You're optimistic. And we are optimistic. <laughs> um, we just found out re- you know, really early that actually we needed to bring together lots of different people with lots of different skills we always said we would never hire more than 10 people and then it was 50 and then it was 100 and then it was 200. And I think as How a many team, people currently work for Headspace? We're, we're about 300 now right. and I think our current, our next one is 500. Okay, 500, absolute no limit. No <laughs> more. Um, so I think, you know, just, just the realisation that, you know, if you want to, if you want to scare, if you want to reach kind of tens and hundreds of millions of people around the world, that that takes a really big talented team of people um i think we thought we could get away with very little money um in fact we started off even with a sort of a not-for-profit sort of ethos thinking oh you know we could we could do this it was difficult and i think we weren't really taken terribly seriously kind of doing it in in that way um so i think raising money uh we bootstrapped for about five years um thanks to our friends and our family who kind of you know enabled us to to do that um but uh, there was a point where it was kind of you know for a long time you know we we sort of said no to institutional money um and i think retrospectively again kind of looking back we could have done that a little early and probably scaled a little faster but i'm happy we did it at the speed we we did it at was it also about educating people on the very concept of mindfulness? Yeah. Because I have to I have to say, with yeah. it was actually with your app that I came across it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's 
Yeah, it's a really interesting thing, right? Because it's not like we created an app in a space which already existed. I mean, it existed in the sense that it's been around for a few thousand years. Yes. And some <laughs> people know about it. But in terms of pop culture, like, not yeah. many people kind of really knew about it. So it was how do we develop and evolve and create this this beautiful thing that people could actually kind of use? Um, and at the same time, how can we you know, create a space in which education can happen, where people can even understand, one, not only what it is, but why they would even need it. Because even once people kind of heard about it, it's kind of, ah, I don't need that. Or or they had some idea of what they thought it was rather than kind of what it actually was. So we kind of worked really hard on trying to create, we, we talked about it as creating the most compelling invitation possible to meditate because we could talk about it People could read about it, but that was fundamentally different from people actually sitting down and trying it and having the experience of it. So that was really the, as as we went out with the app, that was the idea. Can I ask you what might be a stupid question? So having uh, listened to the app, you have an incredibly relaxing voice. Um, and you have, it, it's as relaxing in person. I, I feel relaxed <laughs> just talking to you right now. Yeah. Is this, I, is it something you've worked on? Have you always been, no, I, you, has your voice always been this relaxing? I can take, <laughs> I can take zero credit. My parents gave me my voice and this is, well, I, I do think um, a lot, what a lot of people say about the app is that, um, and again, it's, it's, it's one voice. It won't work for, it won't work for everybody. Um, but I, I feel like, a lot of people say that traditionally in meditation apps, you know, everyone's talking like this. And that's not, I don't know, for me, that's not real. And, and I just try and show up and, and be real in that sense. So hopefully that's, that adds something, whether it's whether you think about it as authenticity or whatever kind of, but hopefully that adds something to, but to the experience. It, uh, the, the other thing I was wondering is, is it in part, I guess, just a manifestation of your relaxed state you know my guess is that it has changed over the year if you i'm sure if we were doing this when i was 18 um <laughs> and you know playing rugby and going out drinking we might have had a, a slightly yeah. different might have had a slightly different timber to, to, to my voice maybe yeah um do you get because you know countless millions use the app now do you get occasionally recognized that people just go, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, probably more in America than right. just because I've done more TV in America than than I have here in in England. But um, it's and it's a combination. Sometimes it's it's people who who will recognise me, but sometimes it's people who recognise the voice. Instead. No, this that's what I meant. Oh, okay. Recognizing yeah, the yeah, voice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's normally in it's in restaurants or cafes or airports. Um, I had one the um, the other day where um, I was. I was a dentist or doctors I can't remember and um and the the nurse was nurse said no oh, it's so she's so relaxing kind of just just listening to you and normally when someone says that I I know they use the app but they just haven't made the connection yet you know <laughs> and um and so it, it took it took a little while for it to to sink in but yeah I I think yeah there's there's about fifty. There's almost 50 million people on the platform now, so it, it's kind of inevitable. You're, every you're about to bump into every, a few. Once in a while, <laughs> we're gonna gonna meet someone. Yeah. Um, and the, the 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 big thing you you have coming up is is you know FDA clearance for the you know that will help chronic diseases. Talk 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 us through that a bit and and how that came about. Yeah. So our um 
when we started in in London, our our second paid hire was a, a scientist, and we believed really early on that in order for mindfulness to become mainstream, it was going to need to be credible. It was going to need to be evidence backed. On a personal level, obviously, for me, it's more about the experience and in being in a monastery. I didn't know anything about the science of it. I just knew for myself that that it worked. Um, but I think in terms of mass culture, it's really important that the, the science is there. So right now we have a, a chief science officer and a team of 15, 15 people who all work kind of specifically within science and healthcare. Um, we have about 20 published papers and about 60, 65, 67 in, in the pipeline. Um, three of three, the biggest meditation studies ever, ever conducted, uh, with the NHS, with the College of Policing, the University of California, um, and all of this is working towards, as you say, a, a sort of getting FDA clearance in, in the US. So we actually set up a subsidiary called Headspace Health. Um, it needs to be separate to, to get FDA clearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it won't be the app as, as you know it. It'll be a specific app for a specific condition, and there will be many of them. So this will allow a doctor to prescribe it and for a health insurance company to to pay for it which again hopefully means that that many more people will kind of be able to have access to it Andy Parikam this has been an incredibly relaxing conversation (laughs) thank you very much thank you well we are so lucky to have Andy here live present Um, so he is going to lead us in a six minute meditation very specific. Yeah. It's very, I, 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 I didn't come up with a six-minute number. This, is, I don't not, know what that is, this but, is not Andy, but we're going um, for six minutes. Yeah. So has everybody and done some... Has anybody done any, anything? Meditation mindfulness? Like that in itself is just a massive shift. Like 10 yeah. years ago, there's no way that anybody in here would have put their hand up. Um, so yeah, we'll just do a short exercise. Three really quick things. One, if you haven't done this before, um, or even if you have done it before... Don't think that just because you're going to close your eyes and do something called meditation that thoughts are going to stop. They won't. Your mind will continue to think. And if you try to stop your mind from thinking, you'll get really frustrated. So just allow the thoughts to come and go. And I'll guide you through it. Second one, no amount of effort can create relaxation in the mind. If you think about sleep, when you try to go to sleep, actually you move further away from sleep. In the same way, if you try too hard to meditate, whatever that is, then, you know, tends to feel a a little bit stressful. And finally, as much as possible, try to let go of any ideas of meditation or mindfulness that you might have had previously and just allow yourself to focus on the breath. So I'd like you to start, rather than closing your eyes straight away, just get comfortable. Um, I'd suggest arms and legs uncrossed, but whatever's more comfortable for for you, you can just rest your your hands on, on your legs. And if you can start with your eyes open and just looking directly ahead of wherever you're sat right now. So you're not staring at one thing. It's a very soft focus. You should be able to see the people either side of you, the room around you. You might even be able to see the ceiling, the floor. And then just Resting the gaze in that way. Just take a couple of big deep breaths, breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth.
So as you breathe in, just noticing how the body, the chest expands as the lungs fill with air. And as you breathe out, just allowing the body to sink into the seat beneath you. And with the next out breath, just gently closing the eyes. So in closing the eyes, just take a few seconds just to enjoy that feeling of having nothing to do, nowhere to go. Just feeling the contact, the weight of the body pressing down. And as you sit there, just taking a moment as well to notice any sounds around you. And just checking in with the body, so notice how you feel this morning, how the body feels, whether there's a sense of heaviness or lightness in the body. Maybe a sense of restlessness or stillness. And just beginning to notice how the body is breathing. So I want you to breathe in any special way, just allowing the body to breathe. And noticing where you feel that movement, that rising and falling sensation. So for some people it's in the chest, maybe in the diaphragm, the stomach. If you can't feel anything, just gently place your hand on your stomach if you feel that rising and falling movement. And we're just going to stay with that feeling, that movement of breath. Again, remember, natural for the mind to wander. If at any stage the mind wanders off, just realizing it, letting the thoughts go, and gently coming back to the breath again. So again, the moment you realize the mind's wandered off, just gently coming back to the breath again.
slowly bringing the attention back once again to the body. Just coming back to that feeling of weight. Body against the seat and the feet on the floor. And then when you're ready, you can just gently open the eyes again. Thank you, Andy. Pleasure. I thought we should, I mean, we finished a minute early, but <laughs> I envisaged them kind of coming on the stage in the middle of the meditation, saying, okay, that's <laughs> enough. That's enough. Off you go now. So I thought it was better to do it that way around. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.